Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning. My name is Dan. We have props today, so be ready. Um, If you're new, you've been here before, welcome. If, If you've been here again... Welcome back. So my name is Dan. Normally you'd see Jeff who did announcements, but he's getting another week off. Part of the reason you're seeing me uh, and you've seen Ken Cantrell so much is that Ken and I have been tasked with leading our home groups, overseeing them, with coaching and mentoring, and um, we believe that home groups are one of the best ways for discipleship. So we are wrapping up our five-week series. This is week five, the final week of Why Home Groups Matter. So week one, we looked at the vision, the definition of a home group. So I'm going to ask you, what is the definition of a home group? So one person said it really loud. Perfect. Look, a hundred grand. All right. So I'm going to trust the people in front of you to pass it on. If you're listening on the podcast, that's right. You should come to church because we just passed out a hundred grand. Just saying. Um, if you really want one, I have an extra here. So. Uh, That was week one, right? We looked at the definition, the vision of our home groups. Then the past three weeks, we've looked at what are the four outputs. So we've done three out of the four. They are to grow in our understanding of the Bible, right? Uh, The second one was to be more like Jesus, to make Christ-like decisions. And then last week, we looked at pursuing Christian community. We know that can be difficult, uh, but just the value and importance of pursuing that. So today, we're going to look at making disciples, and I know it's inherent in that net definition, is to make disciples of Jesus. So that's where we're going to spend our time today. But before I do that, I want to spend time in prayer because prayer is such an important aspect of making disciples. So Father God, we thank you that you are here. That we're two or three, that you are here, God. So we thank you for that. God, I pray that your word, which is alive, that you speak today. That you silence me. And God, that you get the glory and the praise. And that you turn our hearts to realize who you are and what you've done for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I do want to lay out a bit of a roadmap, help you understand where we're going to go today. So I want to look at what is a disciple? What is that definition? What does discipleship look like? That's part one. Part two, I want to look at what is worship? Uh, Spoiler alert, I think they are connected. So we're going to talk about what is worship, and that's going to lead us to our third, which what are the barriers and how do we overcome them when it comes to worship and making disciples? So that's where we're going to go today. So I want you to be able to follow along, understand the whole point of this. So we started this in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 was written by Luke, who's a physician, and he went along with Paul as they went and planted churches. Okay? Paul and Silas go, and they bring on Timothy, who's a mentor, mentee of Paul. And they go where Paul has his dream, and they go to Philippi, district of Macedonia. Uh, the cool part, it was named, if you weren't here for the week one, just give you a quick recap. Philippi was named after Philip II, who ends up being the father of Alexander the Great. So a little historical reference there. Three people are in the book of Acts 16. It's, we have Lydia, we have a slave girl who's possessed by an evil spirit, and we have a jailer. I'm going to talk about those three again. We're going to come back full circle later on today. But what I want to do is those three people really are credited to forming that first church in Philippi. So our goal in this series was we laid out the definition and the vision, and then we went to preach out of Philippians. 
cool thing about Philippians, that is Paul's letter or letters. There's some controversy back and forth, but it's Paul writing to that church. Now, Bible scholars believe it was like 10 years old at the time. So Paul writes to them. So we're going to look at that. We're going to start in Philippians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn there with me. If not, we'll have it on the screen. Um, But in Philippians 2, this is what it says in verse 4 through 11. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Now you and I, we are here today because Jesus humbled himself and he was obedient to the cross. That Jesus, being equal of God, humbled himself. It says that he became flesh and dwelt among us. That's why we're here. There's no other reason than the fact that Jesus did that so he could restore our relationship with God. And in that verse, I can see a couple of things. If I jump out that when we look to the interest of others, it's kind of very similar to our definition of a home group. We see that we're called to commit to each other's spiritual growth. Our growth will happen, but we're to commit to each other. And we can see Paul saying, hey, don't worry about just about yourself, but worry about those around you. I can also see the need for making disciples. How else will every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord without us saying it, without us teaching it? So that's why I hear discipleship in there. But I want to back up for a second and kind of define what is a disciple? Anybody use the word disciple outside of church for fun? Right? Um, I mean, there's the joke about the one disciple that walked into a bar. I'm just kidding. There may be. Um, but we don't use that word often, right? There are some people that are, like, cringe because you're like, oh, that's a church word. And listen, if you've been hurt by the church or a church and you cringe when you hear the word disciple, please note that I'm not trying to tell you what a disciple is so we can convert you and ask for your money. And we're not going to ask for your money and then convert you. That's not the goal or not our mission. So I want to kind of back up even a little bit further. The word disciple is a follower or a student. So I think about being a dad of three small kids. My kids are disciples of my wife and I. Hopefully more like my wife than me, because uh, she's amazing. So I can say that. But when you think about just disciple, we all follow someone or something. Whether it's a motto or a lifestyle or a theme, right? Think about the access we have today. Through social media, through your smartphone, through the internet, we can follow anyone or anything at any time. Whether they're an athlete or a celebrity or a chef. I said chef. Um, or a pastor, There are pastors that I listen to that, regardless, I can read about them, I can watch them, I can listen. So we have ways of following. Now, from a Christian standpoint, when we say we're a disciple, we're saying we're a follower of Jesus. Now, inherent in that definition of a disciple is that relational aspect. So as a follower of Jesus, we're saying that we have a relationship with Jesus. And I want to distinguish that because I think so often, like, well, I have lots of followers on social media. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about that relationship, kind of like a parent. My kids have that relationship with me. And I think, though, when we think about discipleship, we kind of, we shy away because we're like, oh, man, 
It's kind of like a mentor, so we think that if we're going to disciple someone, we have to have it all together. And that's not the case, and we'll kind of highlight that today as well. So I think most people are okay with us saying that we're followers of Jesus. I think the struggle is that people have is they're like, wait, you're exclusively a follower of Jesus? I mean, people think Jesus, hey, he's a nice guy. He's a good moral teacher. He's a judge not lest you be judged. Or, I couldn't not put this in here, he's everybody's homeboy. I don't use the word homeboy. Most of you probably don't either. But there's a shirt. Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is so much more than a moral teacher or our homeboy. So you're thinking, what is this guy, this Jewish guy that lived 2,000 years ago, what does he have to do with my life? What does he have to do with being a disciple? And I think when you look at Jesus, when his ministry, when he called his disciples, the first thing he did is he gave them an action. He said, follow me. Follow me. At the end of his time on earth, three and a half years later, we're going to pick up in Matthew 20. It's known as the Great Commission. So this is after Jesus has died. He's been on the cross. He's been buried for three days. He rises again. He's been seen by over 500 people. So Jesus calls his disciples to come to Galilee. And this is what he says to them. There's going to be another action. He says that, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. So when the disciples see him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And here's the action. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now you hear that. There's a lot. I mean, we could probably spend some hours or even the next couple of weeks kind of going through that. I think, and I've read that, that passage is one of the most scrutinized passages in the Bible. We like to sit around and talk about going or making disciples. We like the theory of it and the concept of it. But when the rubber hits the road, we're not really good at going and making disciples. There's tension there because we know that it's a, it's a tough thing. And I think part of why it's a hard time is when we look at that verse we had earlier in Philippians, it says that Paul tells us to look to the interest of others. I think so often we want to say, what are the pros and cons? Will the benefits outweigh the cost of me worrying about this person's interest, their needs? I think it's okay we can do it in a small setting, right? Well, it's a small group and I know I'll get something back from it. But do we really care about their interest or are we looking to get something out of it? And I think from there, it kind of helps me. What does discipleship then look like? We know that it's, it's being a follower of someone or something. We're calling it, as Christians a follower of Jesus. So what does that look like? And I think here you can see in the New Testament, Jesus models this really, really well. One of the ways he models it is at first he would preach to hundreds to thousands of people, kind of like your church setting, right? Then he would say there's roughly 70 to 120, people go back and forth the number, that he would send out to share the good news of Jesus. And then he had 12 that were closer, his apostles, his disciples, the 12. And I was just reading in Mark, and it talks about how Jesus would share the parables, and then with those 12, he would explain even further the message of those parables. We kind of model that because we want our home groups to be roughly 12 people or so. And then from there, Jesus had two or three guys that he really invested in. And we model that as well with kind of our core groups, where two or three men or two or three women will get together, they each other accountable, they talk through the life, the good, the bad. So Jesus kind of gives us that model of how it looks like from that standpoint. We believe that home groups are 
kind of echo, reflect that aspect of discipleship because home groups give us a safe place to grow either towards Christ or in, in Christ. That's why we've been doing the past four weeks on why home groups matter. It gives us a safe place to grow together in Christ or towards Christ. Now, if you think about just the outputs that we've listed, the first one is to grow in our understanding of the Bible. The more we grow in our understanding of the Bible, the more we realize who God is. The more we realize our need for him, the we realize what Jesus has done on our behalf. As we, as we grow there, we then move into being more like Jesus, to make Christ-like decisions. And then, as, we, as Ken talked last week, we, want, we need to pursue Christian community. Because we realize to grow and understand the Bible and to be more like Jesus, we need to do that in a group. So all this build to lead us to making disciples. As we read our Bible together, as we pray together, as we break bread together, as we worship, as we have gospel conversations together in our home groups, they lead us to that model of discipleship. So as I was preparing for this, I was like, oh, these are good things, but it dawned on me that I was missing out on worship. Now, I think our first thought is when we bring in worship, we think what we just did. We think of singing. I think we, we think worship is something we can do, start and then stop. But worship is more about our hearts. Our band does an amazing job every week with the songs they choose, the way they sing them, bringing us, the, reminding us who God is and what he's done for us. The song we sang, Good, Good Father, reminds us who he is, and because of who he is and what he's done for us is who we are. But worship is more than that. I was reading one of the pastors I follow, uh, John Piper, was reading his book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And in, in his book, he says that true worship is the valuing or treasuring God above all else. Valuing or treasuring God above all else. It's a heart issue. And that kind of hit me because I started thinking about the fact that I like to be valued. If I want to be really honest, I want to be worshipped. Now, I don't want you guys to worship me. Maybe a little bit I do. Uh, but I don't want to be the center of attention. I don't want to be what you put your hope and your trust in because I'm going to let you down. But I think at the core, we all want to be worshipped. And I think it goes back to Genesis. Now, I know that we always... People joke that we always preach out of Genesis, but we cannot help it because if you look at Genesis, it tells us every single time who we are and what, we've, what we'll do every single time. So in Genesis, first two chapters, one and two, God creates. He makes the heavens and the earth. Then he makes man and woman. He says, it was really good. And God said, hey, you can do anything but this one. Don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do that. Anything else you can do. So after time, Satan lies to them, and they believe that if they eat of that tree, they can be equal of God. So when you look at the definition of worship, Adam and Eve didn't want to worship God. They wanted to be equal with God. They didn't want to value him above themselves. They wanted to be above God. Does that resonate? We want to be above God. We don't, it's nice to value him or treasure him, but also we want to look out for ourselves. So I think the issue with worship is that we put this box with Jesus in there and say, we'll worship and just like we'll follow Jesus when it's convenient for us. That means we go this, on Sunday, we can check that box. Or when times are really hard and things are going not well, we'll bring Jesus back into it. But we don't want to worship unless it's convenient for us. But if we're honest, if we're going to follow Jesus, we're called to be worshipers of Jesus. We are to say, Jesus, you are the ultimate. 
You are what we were made for, what we long for. It takes me that in John chapter 4, and I spoke on this in week 1, and Jesus goes to Samaria. If you want to talk about some racial tension, Samaritans and Jewish people did not get along. It was a civil war between them. So Jesus goes to Samaria, and he talks to this woman at the well. So in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to her, and she's, not, she's had a rough past. We don't know why. It's not ours to judge, but she's been married five times, and now she's with another guy. So Jesus, he doesn't care about that. He goes to her, and this is what he says in John 4. You worship what you don't know. What he's saying is what you valued has not satisfied has let you down. Those relationships are not enough. You, va- you worship what you don't know, but we worship what we know for salvation from the Jews. What he's saying here is that the reason is the Jewish people are God's chosen people. So that's why they could worship God. But Jesus goes on, he says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, true worship, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What Jesus is saying is, the thing you're longing for is me. It's Jesus. And anything else, worship, is never going to satisfy. It's always going to let you down. And the verse I brought up earlier in Matthew 28, I don't know if you caught it, but it says this in verse 17. It says, and when they saw him, so when the disciples saw him, they worshiped. Some doubted, but they still worshiped. This may not make sense, but Jesus, you are it, is what they're saying. Do we feel that? I mean, two different scenarios, right? Two, one scene where Jesus has, his ministry is ongoing. Now, Jesus has paid the ultimate price on the cross. He's risen and in his, the response both times is worship. It's saying, God, the Father, your Son, Jesus, is holy, and we are in awe. That is why we gather on Sundays to worship. It's why we sing those songs. To remind us, we do it in a corporate setting for all of us to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But it goes back to that fact that that's not always convenient. We can keep Jesus in our box and worship in our box because we don't want to offend anybody. So we can just keep it here where it's nice and neat, and we'll do it when it's, when it's available for us. But when we look at worship as a heart, worship is something we need to be doing daily. It's why we need to open the Word of God. It's why we need to talk to Him and listen in prayer. It's why we need to do it together, because we know that on our own we're going to fall short. There's a famous author that we often quote. He's a dead author. His name is C.S. Lewis, if you haven't heard of him. He wrote, a, he wrote a lot of books, but one of his books is called Mere Christianity. And he said in Mere Christianity this, that every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming Christian is simply nothing else, to become a little Christ. And when I read that, it takes me back to that verse in Philippians where it says that Jesus humbled himself, that he took on the form of a servant, and he became obedient to the death and the death on the cross. And the reason that is, is because Jesus valued God the Father, his plan, above his own life. He said, God, I trust you. If there's another way, then do it. But if not, then I value, I treasure you, Jesus, God. That's what Jesus said. That's the example that he gives, he leaves for us. So very similar that we all follow something or someone. We all worship someone or something. All of us are worshiping something. And I've heard it said that what we fear to lose the most, that's ultimately what we're worshiping. 
So I would ask you, what do you fear to lose the most? Part of worship, when our hearts are right, when it's like a fountain. We're called to overflow with the love of Jesus. That's what worship does for us. So when we're worshiping, it leads us to what we call gospel conversations. And throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus modeled it really, really well. Jesus would engage with anybody. He would have conversations. He would ask questions. Part of those conversations that Jesus did so well is that he would listen. We are called to listen as, and talk. There's a famous guy, uh, maybe not famous, but there's an old, I don't know, how, I forget when he lived. Uh, Francis Schaeffer is his name. And Francis Schaeffer used to open his house and let people come and share their struggles and their issues. And I was reading about him, and they said that there was this girl who was 16 years old, and her dad was a pastor. And she had questions and doubts about God and faith, and so she wrote him in her journal, her private journal that her mom found one day and exposed it and gave it to her dad. And her dad didn't show any grace. At the age of 16, he kicked her out of the house saying, you can't have doubts. So Francis Schaefer brought her in, her in this house and just listened and helped work, help her work through that. Uh, but he goes on, he says this. He says, if I only have an hour with someone, I'll spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and their mind. And then in the last five minutes, I'll share something of the truth. What he's saying is we need to listen for 55 minutes and then use the last five minutes to respond. I think we do the opposite. We want to talk or preach to somebody for 55 minutes and then give them five minutes to respond. Jesus would ask and listen. I think Paul did a really good job of that as well. We have these examples in the Bible to realize how we can do that, how we have these conversations. And we have these conversations when we overflow with worship of who God is and what he's done for us. To bring this back in the full circle, if we go to Acts, Acts chapter 16, I'm going to paraphrase some of this. So we had three people. We have Lydia, we have the slave girl that was blessed by evil spirit, and then we have a jailer. So three people. My home group makes fun of me for using the thumb instead of one, two, three, but one, two, three. So that's, um, so I want to bring those people back in. Now, we don't know all those conversations. We're privileged to know little bits of it, but we're not privileged to know all of it. So some of this is going to be me kind of paraphrasing or making some assumptions. This is not directly, so I want to be careful here because I don't want to offend you or think that what I say is ultimately truth, but I think some of the conversations may have looked like this. So the first one is Lydia. Paul is going to plant a church. So he finds out that there's a prayer, a group of women that are praying by the river. So Paul goes there and he meets Lydia. The Bible says that she was a successful businesswoman and that she was a worshiper of God. The successful businesswoman part takes me to think, well, she's probably motivated. She's driven. Anything that she, she was successful, so what she did, she was good at it. So Paul, in that conversation, we don't know what it looked like, but my guess would be something along the lines of this, of, hey, Lydia, I know you're successful, but none of that's probably satisfied you. You're looking to worship God because you were longing to find the ultimate, the one that will satisfy you, the one that's never going to leave you. And that's how Paul potentially could have laid out the gospel. That's one way, right? We, well, then we move into the slave girl. We don't know a lot about her. Uh, a lot of scholars believe that Lydia brings her into her house. And she opens her doors. 
But we don't know. We know that Paul and Silas would walk by and she was like, oh, but these guys are followers of Jesus. And she would proclaim. And she did it for days before Paul got annoyed and then he cast out the spirit. So I don't know what the conversation looked like before or after. But the thing I know is that Lydia didn't say, ooh, that's Paul's job. He's the missionary. He's the church guy. Lydia opens her door. Lydia, who's just overflowing with worship of who Jesus is, opens her door, her house, to this girl. I think, when I think about Lydia and this slave girl, the first barrier that I want to kind of talk through is fear. And I think fear is a really real barrier. Think about Lydia's perspective real quick. There's the fear of rejection. Will this girl even want to talk to me or open up? What if I use the wrong words? What if I mess this up? Uh, Am I good enough is another fear. Is Lydia good enough to take this girl into her house and show her who Jesus is? Fear is real. There could be more fears that she experienced, but I think we all can relate to that. But the beauty of it is in that Philippians 2 when says, Paul says to care for the interest of others. Lydia did that. She didn't say, no, I'm not sure. The pros. She opened her house. She was concerned about this girl's interest and her needs. I've shared this story before, but last year, last summer, I had an opportunity to move from my internal uh, promotion to a project manager. And they said I was going to have an hour-long interview with three, a panel of three. And then afterwards, I was going to do a 15-minute presentation on influencing without authority. When I first got the topic, I was like, man, that's Jesus. He had no, no authority. None. Born of a carpenter's son, he had no authority. Yet, people that are non-Christians all agree that he was one of the most influential people of all time. But then I was like, ooh, this is an interview. Can I really bring Jesus into it? So I prepared my whole, my whole presentation without Jesus. In the morning of, I got to the office early, and I was just praying a little bit, and I felt the Holy Spirit say, you cannot deny Jesus. So I brought Jesus into it, and I started my, my presentation by saying, hey, Jesus is one of the most influential people of all time, and that's agreed upon by everybody. And in my personal relationship with Jesus has really shaped me because I'm a follower of his. That's all I said. I wasn't looking for some great response or conversion, but I wanted to bring Jesus into it because how he's shaped just my view through the gospel, my need for Jesus. I did get the job. I don't think it had a sway one way or the other of bringing Jesus, but it was one of those I didn't feel right if I didn't bring him into it. Now, there have been times where I've allowed fear to cripple me, where I haven't brought in Jesus or a gospel conversation to somebody because of fear. I don't want to offend them. They know how I think or maybe a joke. I have not done that. And I think that is because when, I, when I'm honest with myself, it's that I haven't been in a place where my worship, where I'm saying, Jesus, you are it, and I want this person to know that you are it. I'm more worried about myself, my interest. I'm not worried about their interest. And how much different would that have looked if Lydia gave in the fear? She didn't open her doors to this girl. Home groups matter because we know that fear is real. Home groups matter because we want you to have gospel conversations in a safe environment with people that you can feel safe and they're going to encourage you. They're not going to belittle you. 
That's why we think home groups matter. Because if you don't have those gospel conversations, if you don't practice bringing each other back to who Jesus is and what he's done for us, you're not going to do it outside of your home group. Just the reality of it. If we cannot have a gospel conversation here or in a home group setting, we're not going to do it outside. And I think about the whole aspect of fear. Throughout the Bible, it addresses fear. It says that to take courage, be strong, do not be afraid for the Lord and God am with you. Paul writes a letter to Timothy, his mentee, right? So Paul's mentoring. He writes a letter and Timothy says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love, peace, and sound mind. Paul has to remind Timothy that to not let fear control him. In Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, it says this. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See, when fear starts to come in, that's why God's given us his word. That's also why we do as a group to encourage you of who God is and what he's done for you. To say, hey, that fear is real, but the Lord's our helper. What can man do to us? Again, it goes to that analogy of that fountain. When we are worshiping, saying, God, you are the ultimate. Above all else, when we're treasuring and valuing above all else, we will overflow with the love of Jesus. And it washes out fear. It washes out guilt or shame or pride or anything else when we overflow with worship. That final character now is is the jailer. Uh, A lot of people believe that the jailer was a former Roman soldier. Romans were really good at killing and torture. So he'd probably seen a lot of tough things, probably done a lot of tough things. So we're not privileged to really know that conversation. But what we do know is this, is that Paul and Silas are just beaten. They're put in prison. And it says in, in Acts chapter 16 that they are, saying, they are praising God in hymns and song, and they're praying. They're not sitting there mumbling and saying, oh, God, where are you? How is this? They may be thinking that internally, but they're not sharing that. Instead, their response is saying, God, this makes no sense, but you are good. We are trusting you. We're valuing you above our own life. So then an earthquake comes, and the doors of the jails are thrown off. And I'm sorry, but if that's me, I'm like, hey, that's God's answer. I'm gone. I'm running. Like, God opened those doors. I'm out. They don't do that. Because they're in that point where they're saying, God, we trust you. So they stay and they worship. Think about how different that would have been if they weren't doing that. If they ran. If they said, hey, we're afraid we're running. Or God, we don't think this is your plan anymore. We're going to improvise. The beauty of that story is that the jailer sees that they didn't run. That they stayed and he falls on his knees and says, what should I do? What must I do to be saved? And they lay out the gospel. And part of that gospel conversation, I don't, again, I'm going to make an assumption here. Part of that gospel conversation was probably to this jailer, hey, we know you've seen a lot of tough things. You've probably done some bad things. You probably feel like there's no forgiveness, there's no second chance. But let me tell you about Jesus who died on your behalf. How you as an unrighteous person can be made right before a holy God. See, the beauty about Christianity, unlike other religions, other religions, you have to climb and try to attain something. You have to, you have to make this mark to achieve it. In Christianity, we can't. The beauty is Jesus came down in the form of a servant. 
And what he does is he climbs down that spiritual ladder. He puts you and I on his back, and he climbs up and lays us at the feet of Jesus. No other religion does that. Last week, I had a, a co-worker who came and shared with me. It was the end of my day. It was a stressful day. I was tired. I had a lot of meetings. had a lot of work still. And she was just kind of telling me what was going on and these problems. And I'll be honest, I was not in a place of worship. I was not overflowing. I hadn't spent time in the Word that morning. I hadn't prayed a whole lot. So as she's sharing all these things, I caught myself not responding in any truth. I just listened. I felt like I missed the opportunity to speak truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for and the hope that he would provide, but I didn't. And I realized it's when I, it's why I spend time in the, in the Bible. It's why we encourage us to do it as a church. It's why we sing songs together is to bring us to the point to say, Jesus, here's who you are and what you've done so that that conversation would have flown out. But it didn't. I don't know what God will do with that. I hope to have another opportunity. I know God is faithful and sovereign in that, but there was that part of me that may have missed an opportunity to share the love of Jesus. And I say that not as like, hey, here's a great way of winning people. I say it as a way of how do I look to their interests? Like Philippians says, we're not looking only to our own, but to the interest of others. I feel like I missed that because I wasn't in a point where I was saying, God, you are the ultimate. I was worried about myself and my own needs and my concerns. That uh, the pastor I mentioned earlier, John Piper, he says this in that book. Um, he says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And he goes on, he says this. He says, you cannot proclaim what you don't prize. When we don't value Jesus as the ultimate, as the center, we're not going to proclaim his name. Therefore, we believe that our home groups matter for that reason. We believe that our home groups help you say, Jesus, you are the ultimate. That you need people in your life that are going to point you back to Jesus. People in your life that are going to challenge you and encourage you in truth and in grace. We believe that through our home groups that you're going to grow in your understanding of the Bible. You do, we believe that you're going, to be make, you're going to be like Christ as you make Christ-like decisions as you grow. We believe that as you pursue Christian community, these are going to flow out of you. And as that happens, you're going to be so overfilled with the love of Jesus that you are going to make disciples. Now, this is not going to happen overnight. This is a lifelong process, but we're all called to that. Jesus says to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We're all called to that, not just people on the staff or the worship band or Jeff. All of us are called to that. We're all called to that because the same Jesus who, though, in Philippians says this, and though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God to be a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I'm going to leave you with this if the band can come back up. But if you are, if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you think Jesus is a good moral teacher or, or your homeboy or whatever he is to you, I would love for you, I would love to have a conversation. I'd love to listen to you. I know Jeff would or Ken. There's others here that we would love to talk with you. 
to walk you through what it means to be in a relationship, that means to be the follower of Jesus. If you call yourself a follower, if you are a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, I'm going to ask you again, what is the thing that you, lo- you fear to lose the most? What are you worshiping? What are you putting your hope and your faith and your trust in? And if it's not Jesus, or if it's not Jesus all the time, because it's not for me, I just ask you just to quiet yourself, to confess it to God. Ask him to be the center of your life, to be the hope, to be the thing you value and treasure the most. And if you're in a home group, we ask you to really just encourage you to commit to the people, to their growth, to help them value and treasure Jesus, to worship him above all else. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your love, for your truth, for your grace. Jesus, I just pray that as a church that we learn, and not just Oak City, but as the church, as the body of Christ, that we learn to worship you, to value you above ourselves. God, in my life, I need that. I need you to be the center, to be the hope and the peace, to be my treasure. Jesus, you are the ultimate because you are God who came down and dwelt among us. You came in the fullness of men so we could have grace upon grace. Jesus, you know our hearts, our desires, and we just ask you to be the center. God, as we sing these songs, may we focus on the words. May we worship you in a way that we haven't before. pray this in the name of Jesus.